Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Oh, that sounded a bit... That sounded a bit sad. Was it supposed to sound sad? Or are you just... Is that just happening in your voice? <laughs> I think it's heavy. I mean, it feels like there's a lot of stuff going on. My neighborhood, my neighborhood, not just like the, the city in which I live, but my neighborhood is going to be a, a location of a, a papal visit. So it's... Uh, by the time folks hear this, I mean... All parking will be illegal. <laughs> we won't be allowed to go anywhere. <laughs> It'll be like, really? Okay. This seems not necessary because it's just the Pope. But anyway, anyway, I'm fine. Yeah, the Pope in your city. That's weird. Um, well, you know, Trump is returning to the White House tomorrow to give some sort of speech. What? That's I know. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> Everything. Okay. Everything is fucking strange out here and it's a heat wave like all over the world and I mean that's heavy too so lots and lots of heavy things are happening so I suppose it makes sense that you had a heavy hello um and (laughs) in in that vein god I feel like there are so many things that we are gonna have to touch on today like I feel like a lot happened this week So I think our listeners are in for a bit of a ride. Like I had this idea that I wanted to talk to you about the news and how frustrated I am about how nothing makes sense with the way the news works. Mm -hmm. That's a great topic. It's a great topic, but there's no time for that today, Nora. (laughs) No, no time for that today. (laughs) But rest assured, listeners, at some point. You're going to get that because it has been on my mind. Mm. And I I was actually just in Ottawa and I was doing a presentation. I did several presentations um, on fake news with some union members. And yeah, I, I too have a lot to say about news and how it's made. And, and, I, and I made this point in a thread that whenever I talk about fake news, I find myself talking more about mainstream news than I am about fake news to try and explain to people why they're feeling like something is wrong, connecting those dots and then saying through the problems in mainstream news, uh, you know, fake news just you know, like flourishes and, and exploits the gaps and blah, blah, blah. So, yes, that will definitely be something we need to talk about for sure. But you're right. There is so much going on. I want to start with the least significant piece. Mm-hmm. Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. You won't be able to guess because this is breaking news. And I suspect, uh, knowing how busy you are, you have not seen this. Mm, Okay. Go. Go forth. Let me know. Okay. Well, this shouldn't be anything we talk about for more than three minutes. But it looks like, depending on when you're listening to this, um, I guess you will know uh, whether or not this happened because we're recording the day before this announcement. But it seems like Andrea Horvath is looking to run to be mayor of Hamilton. <laughs> and I, I you, you understand why I don't want to talk about this for more than three minutes. Yeah. Okay. I just wish that I just wish that you know we talk about shame in society a lot, and I just wish that there were people that did have more shame. Yeah. I. I mean, I really. I think I've said I've probably said this on the podcast before. I know I've said this to you before, but. The thing that I, I really struggle with when it comes to career politicians is it's just like, what do, what do you what what are you passionate about? Like, what do you actually want to do? Like, do you have a thing that you want to do or is, yeah. it, is it a position that you want to hold? Because one is someone who I 
can respect and trust a little bit more, not necessarily trust, but at least respect. Um, trust is, is a little bit different. It depends <laughs> yeah. on who you are. But the other is just like, what the, why, why, why do you want just these positions to hold? Like that I don't understand. Um, and I think is a, tells us a lot about what is wrong with politicians and politics these days because people think yeah. about it. Like, you know, yeah. if you're not going in there with like a, a goal to shift something in society, something you're passionate about, a community that you're from, a community of people who are trying to make change that you're from, like, I don't really understand. And maybe some people will argue that Andrea Horvath is from a community of people, a community of workers. She's from, you know, she it comes from the labor movement. But I, I, anyway, I'm just, <laughs> yeah, in, interesting news interesting news yeah yeah i mean maybe maybe you could find another job entirely i don't know that's just that's an option you know maybe maybe she should look into carrying mail or fucking working at a public pool or something it just seems very as you say very um okay so there's a little piece of uh, information uh i think that was three minutes let's get into some stuff that actually matters well Nora, I think you mentioned it right off the top. Uh, papal visit. Uh, the Pope is Pope Francis is in Canada. He's doing a Canada tour. He has um, said that he is deeply sorry uh, for the deplorable evil of residential schools and the colonizing mentality of Christians. Uh, and I suppose. That means he's beginning his uh, de the decolonization phase of Catholicism. Yay! Yay! I mean, you're you grew up Catholic, <laughs> so mm -hmm. the, um, I did. Thoughts on the decolonization phase of Catholicism? Yeah. Okay. So Catholicism is a massive institution, as everybody knows, and it's a wealthy institution in some ways. In other ways, it's not exactly wealthy because we're looking at situations like the Archdiocese of St. John's in Newfoundland is selling off like old properties, cathedrals to be able to pay for settlements related to, to, to sexual abuse. I think there's a lot to say about the papal visit, and a lot of it um, is being said by Indigenous commentators and activists, and certainly uh, we're hearing a lot from survivors, and that's all really important. Debates about, is apology enough? Is it appropriate? Was uh, like Will people accept this apology? That, that th Those kinds of discussions are dominating the news right now. And I think as someone who uh, is white and who knows a lot about the Catholic Church, I, I, you know, I don't want to downplay the significance of hearing Pope Francis say these words. I think that that is significant for a lot of people that needed to hear him say these words. And so, you know, on that side, like this visit didn't need to happen so that, you know, there's some positives uh, there. But like we cannot overstate how positive this is, because at the end of the day, uh, the Vatican is still in control of a lot of things. They're in control of documents. They're in control of artifacts, of, of special items that have not ever been repatriated, that are on display at Vatican museums and, and in storage areas. And one of the ways that the Catholic Church operates is it's extremely, it's, it's both extremely centralized and decentralized. And so one of the biggest problems in Canada has been trying to get records. And, you know, 
you might think, okay, well, I want to get the records from this this uh, institution that operated. I will go to the local archdiocese in which the institution was operating. And then the archdiocese is like, but it wasn't us. It was the order of the oblates were running it or the gray nuns were running it or whatever, another order. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, but the oblates are refusing to release their documents. Well, can't you just go to the Vatican and force the oblates to the Vatican? And then all of a sudden you're in this like big bureaucratic mess of people refusing to take responsibility and things get perpetuated. And and that's really been the story, I think, uh, for, forever uh, when it comes to talking about the Catholic Church and, and cooperating with, with trying to identify uh, s- instances of abuse, systemic abuse, and critically actually punishing uh, some of the people or all of the people who are involved. Because a lot of criminals are still alive. They're still alive and they easily could be prosecuted. This is this is really, really big. And I think that like one of the more cynical readings of it is the Canadian state gets to take a bit of a holiday on their responsibility for all of this because all of the attention is on the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church deserves a fucking lot of attention for sure. But it's the Canadian state that continues to benefit, continues and continues to continues to benefit from everything that has happened and everything that is currently happening. And one of the things that I am eager to see is once this is all over, how we force the the federal government to take this stuff seriously. Because I think whenever I see focuses um, placed on the, the, the church institutions, and, and mostly it's been the Catholic Church because it has been the, the, the slowest to apologize, the slowest to respond to calls for action, the slow, like the most uncooperative, um, it always feels to me like the federal government's like, well, this is a pretty good scapegoat. We don't need to um, – we can let them take the blame as if it wasn't the government and the church operate, operating hand in glove. Yeah, I think that um, you're right in that piece. I think that zooming out a little bit too, you know, we are in this um, period of time in the world where the apology has become – Um, like this really ubiquitous tool that institutions use in order to quell a dissent, in order to to quell um, calls for uh, reparations, for other types of justice. And uh, in addition to taking a a holiday from the Canadian uh, state, um, uh, both the, the Catholic Church and the Canadian state Um, do they plan to do anything more coming out of this apology? The Pope has said that this is a first step, right? But, I mean, that was in the text of the apology. But, like, what is... What is the next step? Like you'd think that in in coming with an apology, that if one were serious about um, correcting wrongs or attempting to undo something that you terribly regret... Um, and don't want to benefit from anymore, uh, that you would, would, would come with these ideas. And again, like you said, I too do not want to downplay the importance of this um, and how this has been important to particular communities. But I, do, I am very skeptical about what moments like these do to, um, to quell movements and to, um, to attempt to placate uh, calls for justice that go beyond um, rhetorical measures, uh, and I, I really, yeah, I think that the the you know the Canadian state, um, this only benefits them, and I, I want to know 
uh, how it is that that is going to be a focus of uh, people who are, you know, who are settlers in this. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that should be the focus of settler communities is of ensuring that the Canadian state doesn't get to just take a back seat and say, well, good thing, good thing uh, the, the perpetrators are here um, uh, as though, you know, agents of the Canadian state and the Canadian state itself, um, again, wasn't uh, at the heart of all of this. Yeah, exactly. I, this past weekend, as I say, I was in Ottawa and I accidentally happened across this sound and light show on Parliament Hill. Uh, it's a broadcasting, it's, it's a show that broadcasts images on uh, on Parliament Hill, on the, the buildings, and it tells the history of Canada. And I mean, on the side of the lights, the lights are amazing. Like it actually looks like the, 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 like the windows at the center block are open and and colorful and they're projecting faces and 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 animations on it. It's it's a really beautiful show. The the storyline <laughs> is so full of bullshit. So full of bullshit about Canada's history, about how how noble we are as Canadians to tame the wild and how ingenious we are at building things like the railway and all this shit. It was just like, wow this this was built this was made for this summer, and it is so full of every single piece of shit myth that stands in the way of actually reckoning with who we are and 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 where we came from. And here you have it playing in Ottawa nightly to tons of people. You know, ends with fucking O Canada, and people are fucking singing and cheering and shit. And it's horrifying. It's just like I'm saying the like, what the fuck like. Was this was this made in like 1992? Like other than some comments about, oh, yes, yes. And there were residential schools and, oh, yeah. OK, so some people died who are Chinese who built the, the railway. By and large, it's still the exact same nationalism. And it's I find that so fascinating because it's like this nationalism is is what enables colonialism to continue. It, it helps to create this, the, the, the conditions to allow colonialism to perpetuate itself. And these spectacles are, as you say, like the, the, those moments where that becomes the focus. And then that's, that's the action. That's it. That's, you know, oh, we've got the apology. We're, we're good to go. Now we're going to broadcast how great the queen is on the, on the peace tower, like for fucking five minutes while like five people cheer who love the queen. Right. So, you know, it's pretty clear that the federal government isn't learning shit from any of this stuff. And Watching the coverage of the papal visit and the reaction of survivors and seeing how moving and moved people are, like, I would think that if a government of any any government, municipal, federal, provincial, a left-wing politician was serious, it'd be like, okay, this is now when we got to fucking talk about land back. And, and land back at a municipal level maybe means, you know, pieces of land. We're literally giving them back to... Uh, this community that lives uh, very close to us, who has claim over our territory, whatever, or crown land, like we're going to give back crown land. We're going to go set, like start a negotiation process to give back crown, like start to actually fucking do something. And of course we know that we just won't see it because not only uh, are our governments still colonial, of course, but there's also like, there's this weird, um, I think among left-wing politicians, too many left-wing politicians, it's a little bit of a weird like, oh, this is a moment for us to listen and learn. And it's like, <laughs> stop. Wrong. What are you talking about? Like, okay. Unless you're not going to do shit, then yeah, then shut up. <laughs> but 
yeah, there's there's so much that needs to be done, and 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 the and and it's obvious. And I I also remain skeptical that that this visit is going to to trigger any of that into into a good way, into actions, into good actions. Yeah, I mean, as you said at the top of the show, like the 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 institution uh, that is the Catholic Church is very 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 slow to act at all. If you're still listening and learning the time that the Pope has arrived, <laughs> like <sighs> you, um, I mean, you, you best be a scholar. Like <laughs> you need like a PhD or something for all the learning you've been doing. It is way past time for the listening and learning and way more. You should be into the action. The other thing that I just want to note about this skeptic, this spectacle that this, this creates that benefits uh, the government in that it it makes it so that the state gets to be handed off is that it also makes it so that um, the state can use it to say like look how great Canadians are how amazing like we welcome apologies we are the apologetic you know like look how wonderful and Canada's marketing of itself um, as this uh, this benevolent country over and over and over again but we should always remember that in in the like the the thought process of the Canadian state of what to do and how to respond to uprisings um, for land back to uprisings for recompense for residential school survivors, what they have done is spent tons and tons of money on this papal visit to make it possible mm-hmm. on crushing dissent and on protecting. The identities of the perpetrators, many of whom are still alive, as you mentioned. Remember that the the Canadian government um, went to court to protect um, the identities of those people who committed much of the atrocities in residential schools, and they have not reversed that action. And so let's not forget those things as this spectacle uh, continues. And in fact, uh, you know, if you're a journalist out there, if you're people thinking about how you want to react in this moment, like that's a thing that I think is really important. Politicians, people who are in power, institutions who are responsible should be asked to respond, um, should be asked to um, to uh, respond to those actions um, that are continuing to harm people uh, that are happening right now. Totally, totally. And also, I mean, like, sometimes this also becomes uh, very uh, siloed off from the rest of Canadian society. And that we don't make connections between, like, institutionalization and sexual violence and the role that both of these things played in building Canada. Not just in genocide. Obviously, they were key in genocide, but also in building this country in general. And I don't know, maybe maybe it's it's more obvious in Quebec because there was such um, there was more control of the Catholic Church of institutions. And so, like, I know people who uh, were living in Catholic institutions as children and who experienced abuse. And those stories are I mean, I wouldn't say every single weekend, but probably every other weekend. There's another story of a class action against a different diocese from people that experienced sexual violence from the church. And it's like. That is built into the core of Canada, really, really built into the core of Canada. And it then 
makes its way into, I mean, very obvious connections like the number of Indigenous people who are incarcerated and sexual violence within incarceration. And, and you know, of course, there's no conversation that any politician's having about decarceralization, which is a really key thing that we do need to be talking about. But also outside of that, in how power is maintained in this country and how power is is exercised in this country and how what we call crime, uh, actions that harm other people, are often have direct links to state-sanctioned, enabled sexual violence. It's more obvious if you're looking at residential schools, survivors, and secondhand and thirdhand trauma, and you can make those connections. There's legal procedure that has been developed to appreciate that. When you look a little bit further... It's like how much of, of, of violence in this country, regardless of who's committing the violence, is, is behavior that is the direct result of institutional violence perpetuated in this country. Whether that was through the Catholic Church, whether that was through another kind of organization, and I know we're going to move on and talk about sport, but that, I think, is the, is the missing piece that really doesn't get talked about. Like, that is how patriarchy is established in this country. That is how control, that is how racial hierarchies are established and control of racial hierarchies are established. And that's literally how government power was, was, was created, was on top of these sexualized violent structures. And so like the Pope's visit is definitely a moment for us to pause and think about when you have an institution like the Catholic church, it's one thing to look and say, you know, we can make maybe make I know a lot of people make jokes about it. Um, and I, I know a lot of people are like, well, that's just a religious thing or that's just a Catholic thing or whatever. But the Catholic Church, I mean, was a key institution that created this country along mm-hmm. with the other churches, mm-hmm. along with the other churches. And, you know, when I went for a walk around uh, the the lake in Regina, the lake, the dammed up creek in Regina that's now a, a, a lake outside of the legislative uh, building and came across a memorial to the sisters who built the province of Saskatchewan through their education and through their and through their 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 uh, health institutions like nuns, not a bunch of related people. I felt like I felt like I was being punched in the neck when I saw that. This memorial to the wonderful work of of the gray nuns or of the of the whatever, whoever the fuck, all of these religious orderlies who created the healthcare system, created the educational system with not a fucking mention of the violence and looking at every single one of the names of the sisters that they were commemorating and thinking to myself, how many of these people were abusive, violent, dangerous? You know, we that's the kind of stuff that we don't reckon with in this country. And. And I think that when this siloed off into these issues as a question of reconciliation, it absolves Canada. Canada benefits with this discourse because it absolves Canada from actually having a serious conversation about where modern institutions came from and the violence and the sexual violence inherent in the creation and maintenance of those institutions. Here, here. Here, here. Um, I think now might be a good time to talk about one of those other institutions that you mentioned, the institution of sport, uh, and in particular, mm-hmm. hockey. So Hockey Canada has been, has been having a bit of a bad couple of years. And 
it's all coming to a bit of a head uh, this week. And I don't know, Nora, how are you feeling in particular about this? I think uh, you may have, I don't know, maybe I made this up, but you may have once criticized the hockey culture in Canada, um, in particular for its whiteness, and been uh, attacked by people from all over this country saying how wonderful the hockey culture was. Um, and in the wake of um, this this scandal in which Hockey Canada, uh, if you haven't heard, has, has like a, a huge put of money set aside to deal with and settle um, sexual violence claims um, that come to them and the sexual violence uh, that people experience within Hockey Canada. Oh my God, it's like a part of the institution. I don't know. How are you, how are you feeling about that um, in July 2022? Mm. Oh, it's a lot of like, uh, yes, obviously, of course, none of this is shocking. I, I was, it, it, it kind of came back to me and I haven't put these kind of pieces together very well, but it's, it's just something that like when you grow up in a hockey town, like I did, it's just always in the ether. And one of the earliest times in my life where I was aware of, of, uh, what, well, I wasn't aware of sexual violence, but I became aware of this being sexual violence at, way later when I was an adult. Uh, was in a was a situation that involved probably the best hockey player in the grades around me. Someone who, um, I mean, we're talking in grade school, so before grade before grade six. Someone who uh, was always like, this is this is someone that's going to the NHL, and that individual perpetuated acts of sexual violence um, at a scale of, of, you know, that would be possible at the age of 12 or whatever the fuck he was. And, and as I say at the time, and for many, many years after, I didn't understand like that until the person involved said it to me straight up. And I didn't realize that it had impacted my friend to that extent. This is an event we were present for and have always talked about. Mm. And it wasn't until that my friend was an adult that they were like, I can't, I mean, but obviously that's what, what, what happened. I was like, holy fuck. I never thought of it like that. And you're right. And since that, I mean, that realization came kind of recently. And since then, I've been really thinking nonstop about how, like, how did a fucking child know to do that? And why, like, how, how much of a coincidence is it that this was the person in my, in the, in the, in the several grades, the grades above me, grades below me, who was the most involved in hockey in, in our school that I knew. I mean, this stuff is really insidious. And when you grow up around it, um, aside from me not being aware in, in this particular instance, you are aware that hockey guys are a specific kind of guy. Like, you know that. And that's what everybody, everybody knows that. <laughs> like, it's just like, that's what it is. And either you're in with them or you're not. And if you aren't in with them, then you kind of have a way to kind of keep yourself separated from that whole world, that whole culture. And if you are in with them, then it's, it's stuff that you kind of come to know and expect. And, and it's not super surprising, which of course makes the abuse so much more possible. It's, it's, it's enabled by these kinds of understandings that this comes with hockey culture. So 
I mean, again, this is where I come from. And and a lot of people have asked me, a lot of people have reached out to me in the wake of this news because of, of you know, how I, I went viral for reminding people about the character of hockey players and hockeyness in Canada that was um, that was at play after the tragedy that hit the Humboldt Broncos hockey team. And just to be clear, you know, it wasn't just, just a reminder that you, it, it was like, it was not just the reminder, like you, you mentioned it and, and it wasn't even that you were challenging it, really. You were just pointing it out. And that was so offensive to, you know, like the Canadian psyche, <laughs> Jesus, that uh, you were blocked from publication in most mainstream news outlets in this country because the pointing of it out, not even the challenging the pointing at it, at the thing that exists, that everybody knows about, was so offensive as to, to um, get these institutions of media all together to say this person cannot have a voice in this country. Like, pretty shocking, pretty stunning stuff. Well, it's, it's, it's got to be protected at all costs, you know? Like, the world juniors Well, and that's how these cow. sorts of... Yes, and that's how these sorts of... Um, uh, institutions that perpetuate uh, sexual violence among, you know, children like that's that's it needs uh, cooperation from institutions like the media and other institutions. Otherwise, this sort of thing doesn't work. Yeah, no, exactly. And so like for 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 me, none of this stuff is surprising because, as I say, I, I mean, this is this is just normal. But the way in which it's protected, like talk about looking into the past and saying, wow, how did these acts of sexual depravity, sexual violence happen with such open uh, uh, consent of the people around these spaces, like of the adults in the room or of the people that ran these institutions? How could that have been possible? And we're asking that question while it is literally ongoing, while, okay, it's not the Catholic Church anymore. It's other institutions, other institutions that have come to, come to become important, really important cultural touchstones, institutions that people place their pride and their identity within. And I mean, I don't know if people have read the the um, the allegations or the stories of what happened with the World Juniors team in two thousand and three. Um, and then you have Jordan Tutu, who is a who is a member of the team, who said that he didn't remember anything. But you know, people went back to his memoir, and there's a paragraph in his memoir referring to the Halifax tournament and um, and and the sexual violence that the players were engaged in. But of course, he wrote it in a way that it was like. Boys being boys will be boys, and oh man, the, the girls are throwing themselves at us, and all this kind of bullshit. And it's like, yeah, 2003, like, it was like two years ago, wasn't it? Like, it wasn't, we're not talking about 1960. We're not talking about 1980. We're talking about 2003. And um, just like we could be talking about something that I'm sure has happened in this past year or has happened in the last two years or maybe it's happened in the last month. Maybe it's happening at training camp. Maybe it's going to happen in the fall. And it's because, again, sexual violence is so important to maintaining power in this country and in our institutions. And so I, I don't know, like... F for me to to watch this stuff unfold, I'm just kind of like, I'm honestly ambivalent to it. Like I don't, none of it comes to me and I'm not like, oh my God, oh, again, uh, uh, uh. I'm just kind of like, oh, like another, another flashpoint. And I guess the big question that I have is like, where will the, where will the moment be that other institutions 
give a mea culpa and say, we've, we've enabled this? And the answer is never, right? Like no one who blacklisted me, for example, will ever come to me and say, you know, I was wrong or we were wrong. They're not going to do that. How do we, how do we transform out of this moment? I think a lot of people are hoping that this is going to create, it's going to be a moment of change and it will absolutely not be a moment of change because this is a sacred cow. This is fundamental to, to Canadian identity. And there are powerful forces that want to make sure that things remain as they are. And if it can be isolated to a couple of players, it can be isolated to a couple of charges and Hockey Canada can deal with it with a couple of individuals. And that will be that. That's what they're going to do because violence is part of the game, is part of controlling players to be the best they can be. And no one wants to actually have that conversation or no one with power who benefits from the status quo is going to want to have that conversation. Ooh, yeah, I think there's not much more to say than that. Um, I would say the final thing for our listeners to know is that, you know, Hockey Canada has released this like action plan where you can see it going through the same motions that every other institution in this country that is like a part of the makeup of what Canada is goes through, you know, like it's, it's a, you know, they're going to collect some data. They're going to study it. They're going to analyze it. They're going to take on some, some, uh, declarations uh, to promise change and blah, blah, blah. And, um, yeah, we've seen this all before and, uh, here it is, uh, here it is again. So there it is. There's, one more thing that we want to talk about before we close out. We have about 10 minutes left. Uh, and that is um, the climate crisis. <laughs> oh, yeah, that. Remember, the what? What? Remember? Remember? <sighs> remember that? Oh, my goodness. So across the country this week, or last week, I suppose, I'm sure it'll be this week as well by the time you're listening to this, um, wildfires flooding, tornado watches, all sorts of hell breaking loose. And uh, here we are. It's not like, I mean, uh, the number one story I think that was happening last week uh, cre- uh, related to the climate crisis uh, was what was happening in the UK. But I mean, there was stuff happening all over Canada. Uh, and here we are in another year of worsening effects of the climate crisis, unable to respond because of the failures of the people who run this place. And I, I really started to, uh, to think about what it is as activists uh, we need to be preparing for. And I mean, we've spoken previously about uh, how, you know, the, the type of organizing that needs to happen to force change from the people who are in power. But in a world where the people in power are not going to be taking care of us and we need to start taking care of ourselves, um, I think that, you know, there's there's some things that activists really need to start thinking about coordinating in their local spaces to ensure that people are safe. Because this sort of thing, people, um, you know, losing access to power people um, being stuck in their homes and uh, being cooked to death, uh, people uh, needing access to uh, air conditioning and not being able to, or cooling centers and them not being 
uh, available to them. This is only going to get worse. And uh, we need to prepare for that. And I, I think that uh, in the absence of the government uh, preparing for these things, in some ways, we need to start thinking about street teams. We're going to need to start organizing the same sorts of things that people who, um, you know, were, were really pioneers in the harm reduction space um, and who, who organized to make sure um, that people who use drugs uh, are safe in their communities uh, when there is a failure of public health. I think that same sort of thing is going to need to start being applied uh, to people uh, just living uh, in this in this climate uh, in this climate under this climate crisis uh, as as this shit gets worse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so funny, uh, like moving from a discussion about hockey and moving in like to a discussion about climate change. It, it shows like how little like snow actually doesn't matter <laughs> to our identity. <laughs> it's like we're just fucking destroying our winters. Right. And and accelerating our summers, destroying forests, destroying all of the carbon capture that uh, has been created for time immemorial uh, that made this land livable. And it's just like, you know what? Fuck it. Fuck it. We don't need fucking snow. While you were talking, I was thinking to myself, like, like, what will it take for an institution like labor to start knocking on doors of long-term care facilities and saying, look, our our members, they install air conditioning units. We're fucking installing air conditioning units. Mm-hmm. Like that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and like there's there's obviously a line between like letting employers, letting uh, building owners off the hook and just doing it to make sure people are safe. But people need to be kept safe. And and waiting for absolutely like Canada's absolutely shittiest people to make the right decision is just playing chicken with a lot of people's lives and they will lose. Like <laughs> they don't care if people die. That's the fucking problem. And so. Uh, like, I don't know. I don't know of any initiatives where, where people are just like, we know how to install this stuff. We actually have money kicking around. We're going to fucking install this shit. We're going to crowdfund this neighborhood. We're going to crowdfund this city or this town or this municipality to actually install fucking air conditioning units in these, in these apartments where people are baking to death. Like that's not fucking hard. Um, so I think, you know, that is definitely what we need to be talking about, creative solutions like that, that will get us to survive. And then the other obvious big piece is what will it take to start, you know, actually, I don't know, putting politicians in a headlocks until they actually fucking do something or or not. And and I think like, you know, it's it's one thing to talk about how evil corporations are. I think it's a totally other thing to really look at, like, the extent to which they are evil and this isn't about climate, but it, it does provide a good example. Did you see these photos in this Coast article from Halifax last week, Sandy? I'm not sure. Not sure? Uh, it had pictures of armed guards in a fucking grocery store. Oh, my God. I guarding... wanted to talk. I literally, okay, just so you know, just so you know, <laughs> when this was over, I was going to be like, the other thing that I wanted to mention but that we didn't have time to mention today was, did you see, did you see the cops ah. in the grocery store because and let me just rant about this for two seconds and then you can get to your point because it's like it is like a it like a absurd absurd so absurd example of 
the the thing that we have been saying this whole time, right? Like that that cops are just a stand-in for everything in society that we no longer want to pay for, for whatever reason, right? It's like, did we need cops at fucking cash registers when cash registers weren't automated? <laughs> no. <laughs> you just, like, had your friendly neighborhood people who were cashiers, like myself at Zeller's, <laughs> you know, who were just, you know, like, at the front, you know, you had, like, human interaction. And these companies have gotten rid of like half their cash staff, if not more, and automated the whole thing. And now we're like, oh, theft in this moment of of inflation where these grocery stores are like raising the prices themselves. And so people are like, can't afford this shit, going to take it. Yeah, duh. like what else are you going to fucking do? And they're like, OK, well, let's get the cops in. We'll get the cops into the grocery store to make the grocery store run in a way that fucks the people. I just <laughs> it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Yes, I did see that. And rant. Go on. <laughs> well, that's the extent to which a corporation like the like Loblaws, Westons, the Weston family, are going to go to protect their profits. And so that's in the food world where we will always need food. There's not going to be any fucking food transition <laughs> off of food to some sort of slurry that will keep us alive. Soylent. The, I don't, yeah, I guess maybe. I no, don't know. No, no, that was a joke, Nora. <laughs> no, I know. Absolutely no, I know. not. Okay, I know. good. <laughs> I know, but there is a product called Soylent, and I always am like, what the fuck? What is with that? Like, that you're supposed to eat. It's very weird. Um, yeah, it's, it's a meal the, replacement. It is like a, it, I, it, was, it was like a joke that was based in reality. <laughs> it's, a, it's a meal replacement to make, to make food, um, I suppose, like, no longer relevant. <laughs> yeah, but wasn't Soylent green like humans? Wasn't Soylent what? green human oh okay so this the, the word soylent it comes from a book eh? <laughs> oh no i don't i didn't know that soylent green is what they were all eating in brave new world <laughs> okay um, oh wait was that in brave new world it's yes. been a long it's been a long time since i read brave new world <laughs> i was like <laughs> 10 <laughs> do you know what i never read it but i was in battle of the books and had to know the plot of a lot of fucking books that i never read <laughs> okay so Yes. Um, unlike unlike the food industry, uh, where there's no possible transition, like, I mean, there's, there's kinds of transitions, but they'll always make money off of food. The, uh, the oil and gas industry, uh, plastics industry, uh, any industry that pollutes, they, they are actually under threat. And the, the extent that they're going to go to protect their profits and protect themselves uh, is, is enormous. And so, I mean, nothing short of some sort of revolution that, that actually sh shakes government to its core is going to actually save us. This is the problem. Um, we, are, we are fucked. We are fucked in Canada. So, I mean, we can talk about how to unfuck ourselves and what kind of organizing, revolutionary organizing is necessary to try and fucking, I don't know, stop stop the, the barreling train. But in the meantime, yeah, how are we protecting ourselves and how are we protecting people who don't have anywhere to go when it's hot. They don't have any respite from the heat, knowing that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And I, I don't know, it, this is an issue that I get, um, like, I just go nowhere. I just, I just turn into like a downward spiral of, oh my God, we're fucked because I, I, I don't know what it will take to take this stuff seriously. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, part of the when I start to feel that way, I start to like break things down into different issues. Um, but uh, we're getting to the close to the end of the episode. But like one of the major issues, and this is why I've been thinking about this a lot this week, is I think the way that our news works. And so maybe that's something to tackle uh, next week. But I do think that it's really weird that um, you know tele televised news and a lot of radio news, like the six the evening news, like is a format that hasn't changed for decades and decades and decades, especially when the the things that are most urgent and affecting our lives barely show up in the first 10 minutes. It's just, it's like, why, why do we call this a news? Like, like I don't even really understand what we're doing here. And um, I think that that's a huge part of the problem. And one of the things that needs to be tackled in order for us to, yes, take this more seriously Every era has its own particularity in how it orients itself to the world, to power, to understanding who we are and how understanding how things operate. And, you know, the post-war eras were oriented towards the war. They were they were eras Im imbued in in Marxist theory, really, where industrial relations became a key part of how society was organized and how people oriented themselves towards, you know, their employer and to their government. Then we watched the end of the welfare state in the neoliberal era, and the neoliberal era was to destroy, sought to destroy all of the community bonds that exist among, amongst each other, one another, to be able to dominate us in, in, a, in a more intense way. The neoliberal era has been the, has been the status quo for 40 years. While at the same time we're looking back and seeing all of these horrifying things that happened in Canada's past, uh, not exactly reckoning with what needs to change in Canada's present to not find ourselves doing the exact same exercise in 50 or 60 years. But it's, it's an era of tremendous change and shifting and consciousness change and understanding that things are really, really bad and they're getting worse and yet there's a political class that is hanging on with their fingertips to make sure that things don't collapse, that things don't change. While we're witnessing collapse in the healthcare system, we're witnessing collapse in, in the environment, we're witnessing collapse in a whole bunch of other places. And so considering the role that sexual violence played in building this, this modern state, I think that that's where we have to really look and, at, at how violence remains critical to policing us, to keeping us in line, to keeping in order. And that if we allow and we normalize state violence that we see today, we're just going to be continuing to perpetuate our own demise. That's basically where we're going. That's that we're continuing on this track. And, and so, you know, whether it's inspiration drawn from the way that people are reacting to the Pope's apology or whether it's knowing that Hockey Canada are a bunch of shitheads and they're not going to fucking change, but that there is an opening to have conversations that maybe wasn't possible in 2018. That's Those are these little tiny openings that we have to really take a hammer to and, and, and smash those openings bigger and to get ourselves through what is normally or what has normally been places that we can't go. And understand that at the end of the day, politicians are not going to be the ones that save us. They're going to be fucking crying that they lost one night and then potentially announcing that they're going to run for the mayor of Hamilton the next. Mm -hmm.